pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we're here on a Sunday again because we must be. It's how you've wired us, how you've made us to be, and especially now that you've drawn us to yourself through our Lord Jesus, that we now really must come to be not only refreshed, but to worship you and be refreshed by thinking upon you and worshiping you. Now we pray that you would speak to us from the scripture. We admit that we need your help, that while we might be able to read these words and understand them and all of that, that too by your grace to us still, we need your very special grace to not only hear and understand, but to believe, to embrace, to know that this is true and to work it out in our own lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us even now as we read, as we think together, and then as we come to your table. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to this little letter to a man named Philemon, letter from Paul to Philemon. It's right before the book of Hebrews, right after um, the book of Titus. So it's just one chapter, if you will. Philemon. Philemon, you remember, is a slave owner, wealthy man in Colossae. His slave Onesimus runs away, becomes a Christian, comes to faith under the ministry of Paul. Paul now sends him back into that situation. And here's the letter he writes to Philemon, the word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've delivered much um, derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own free will. For this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you, and the Lord refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. 
Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Now, I want, God will help me, to take this little letter up again. We had it a couple of weeks ago. And of course, Jerry Bridges last Sunday, but, but a couple of weeks ago, just to begin this week to kind of sum up and uh, look at a different point. It's short but profound, really, and I think it speaks at the very heart of what it means to live together as a people who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, as a people together, a uh, community uh, of people. And while the circumstances are a bit odd to us, a runaway slave from a master and all of that, what they ask, what Paul's asking Onesimus and Philemon to go through really strikes, I think, at the very heart of our lives in the context of our families, in the context of friendships, in the context of life together in, in church. Key players, as I mentioned before, I read this man Philemon. He a, a, seems to be a wealthy man. He's a slave owner there in Colossae, and also uh, the church meets in his house. It doesn't have to be a big church, but at least he's a homeowner. At least he has a, a place where they can meet and come together. Uh, so all of that taken together, he's considered uh, to be uh, a relatively wealthy man. When we say slave owner, remember that that slavery was different than the experience that we've had in the 17th, 18th century um, in 19th century in our own country, uh, different than that, more of an indentured servanthood. Uh, slaves made up a relatively significant part of the population uh, in that particular culture. Um, they would not necessarily be slaves for life, usually not simply to pay off a debt. Some slaves were better off as slaves and they would have been free. Some slaves were not simply menial workers, if you will, but professionals like teachers and doctors and, and that kind of thing but still slaves nonetheless. So the potential for abuse was huge. Uh, they were considered by their masters to be more property and possession than persons. Um, could be treated badly, mistreated in all kinds of ways. Runaway slaves, most especially, they could be once found beaten, branded even, to mark them out as those who have run, been fugitives, if you will, run away. Uh, they could be chained, they could be in certain instances killed. So, still, slaves. And this slave Onesimus runs away from his master Philemon. Uh, it appears as if he may have stolen money to leave, and when he left, and, and, and he finds his way providentially, we don't know how, he finds his way to Paul, who's under house arrest in Rome, and in the midst of that, he becomes a Christian, trusts Christ. Paul refers to him as his child in the faith. I became his father, he says, in my imprisonment, in that spiritual father sense. And so, so he's become a Christian. And now uh, Paul is sending Onesimus back. He's carrying not only this letter, but probably also the letter to the church in Colossae and perhaps the church in Ephesus uh, with um, Tychicus, probably, with him, as we learn from the letter to the church in Colossae. Since this is Colossae's carrying that letter plus this letter, the letter to the church, this personal one. But, but this letter, even though it's written to Philemon, is bigger than just to Philemon. We can see that uh, Paul addresses it not only to Philemon, but his wife and Archippus, who was likely to be perhaps Philemon's son and or the pastor of the church that meets in his house. Uh, and also to the whole church, because this is something that everyone needs to know about. This is something, this is an exercise, you see, really, in how it is that we live together as church. Onesimus, in essence, 
is being asked by Paul, sent by Paul to Philemon to ask Philemon for forgiveness for having run away. And so there he comes to, to ask this uh, forgiveness, this runaway slave. It would have been amazing for uh, Philemon even to think about forgiving him, but, 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 but here he is on his doorstep, this, this slave, not at some risk, of course, to Onesimus to do this, because he, he didn't know exactly how he'd be received. Oh, we had this letter from Paul, but, but legally, I mean, Philemon could have him beaten, could have him branded, could have him chained, or worse, and so there he was. He could then be received back into Philemon's house as a slave. That was the plan, if you will, uh, and he could be mistreated in the midst of that or given the worst position imaginable um, in, the midst of, in, the midst of, in the midst of all of this. But you see, amazingly, Paul refers to Philemon as Onesimus' brother. Again, unthinkable in that culture to think that a slave would be the brother of one who was a, an owner of slaves. How, how, could, how could that be, you see? But the basis of all of this, the reason, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, why Paul sent Onesimus back was so that the two of them could be reconciled. Because you see, in his running, Onesimus offended, really, Philemon, he, he broke his word. He, he said he would be this slave to, uh, to Philemon, and yet he ran away. He broke his word, and in so doing, if he stole money, uh, that's one thing. Another thing, he probably hurt Philemon's business because he was expecting some productivity out of this slave, Onesimus, and when he was gone, he wouldn't receive that. Not only that, but there might be some other social kinds of ramifications to his, his running. He would wonder, the other slave owners would wonder, what's Philemon going to do? How could he let this happen? This hurts all of us. So in the midst of that, both economically and socially, perhaps politically, otherwise, Philemon was hurt by this slaves running away. And Paul says, because the very guts of the gospel is reconciliation, reconciliation with God, reconciliation with others, that this breach must be mended. This is the nature of the gospel. It is good news. It's good news about reconciliation. It's good news about enemies being brought together, first and foremost, us and God, you see. We've offended him. And through Jesus, there is, in fact, reconciliation. And in the midst of that reconciliation with God, of course, uh, we are reconciled as well. Because, you see, it's, it's, it's our coming and repenting of our selfishness and our self-centeredness and our pride and all of that, that which separates us from God, that which says we're autonomous and we want to run from him. When we realize the sin of that and we come and we repent of that, he grants us forgiveness in Jesus. And when he does that, we're reconciled to him. But also, as I said, to each other, because that same sin, that same selfishness, that same self-centeredness is what keeps us from each other. That's what sets us apart, what, 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 what puts us apart from one another, what divides us. So once we've amended before God, you see, we're reconciled to him. Then we have one father, thus one family. We have one Lord, thus one faith. We have one spirit, thus one body. He joins us not only with God, but with each other. And so Paul, thinking of this breach between Onesimus and Philemon, however wild that is in that culture between a slave owner and a slave, he says, still your brothers, you need to be reconciled together. Because how can we live as a community of people without, with any integrity at all? 
How can we claim to have been reconciled with God if we can't be reconciled to each other? And again, so however outlandish it was to think he sends Onesimus back. But now here's Philemon. On his doorstep is this runaway slave. What was he really to do? Well, you can tell as you read between the lines, Paul doesn't say, I want you to forgive him, but, but, but really that's what he says. In fact, he even says, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. Just, you know, take him back. That doesn't mean, if you read the letter, that he's going to free Onesimus. Paul says, you'll have, you'll have him back in the flesh, that is, as human relationships, and he was your slave. But also now, this whole new twist on it, as a brother in the Lord. But he's to forgive him, to take him back. And on what basis is that request? We may one of the basis of love, but on the basis of love, because Philemon, you see, is a believer in Jesus. He's, he's one who believes Jesus, and the, the test of that is whether or not we love we love one another. John writes in his first epistle, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave him his son as a, an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And, and how do we know then that we've been born into this love? Well, it's because we love. He says that's the evidence. of. So Paul appeals now to, to love so that Philemon will forgive this runaway slave, Onesimus. What does it really mean to forgive? What's it really mean to forgive? Well, anytime there's an offense, a debt is incurred. For instance, if I steal a hundred dollars from you, then you're out that hundred bucks. I've, I've hurt you to that regard. Now, now, how are you made right? Well, I can pay you back that hundred dollars and you'd be made right, but, but it may not pay back everything because in stealing from you, there may be other consequences, other, other things that have happened in, in your life, uh, an emotional, psychological effect. I've stolen from you. I've betrayed our friendship. How, how do you make that right? There may be some psychological cost. You now realize that you're vulnerable to people stealing from you. How can I make that right. Well, you may decide that you're going to make me pay not only the $100, but you'll also make me pay by way of, 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 of telling all of my friends and your friends what, what I've done uh, so that they won't trust me either. You'll break off our friendship. You'll, you, you'll then say uh, things about me to others, true things. I stole $100 from you. It's true things. And you'll take that and, and, and sort of take my name all over the place, the, the hope being that, that somehow you'll hurt me as much as I've hurt you and, and therefore at the end of the day you'll get your hundred bucks back plus you'll take care of the psychological and emotional effects of that too by hurting me and then everything will be right. Parenthetically of course it won't be. You'll just end up being a better person. But, but, but that's the sense of it, isn't it? How do, you, how do you make it right? Well, you've got to pay. Somebody's got to pay when someone's been hurt. And that's the very point of forgiveness, you see. When one forgives, one pays. One absorbs, if you will, the cost of that, of that hurt. If you're going to forgive the whole debt, then you wouldn't even take the money. You'd say, no, you're forgiven. What does that mean? It means I'm out 100 bucks. That hurt is imputed. That debt is imputed to me. I take it. 
Thus, you're free. See, part of the language of forgiveness is being loosed as opposed to being bound. Jesus was speaking of the keys of the kingdom to his disciples. He said, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you're loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. And by that, he was saying, this is, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of forgiveness. It's forgiveness language. When you forgive another, that debt that is owed is, 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 is sent away. When we say that, what we mean is we've taken it, so it's sent away from you, not from me. I'm the one who's now hurt. For instance, if, if, if I slandered your reputation and you forgave me, I'm loosed from the penalty, from the debt, but your reputation is still hurt. And you're willing, you see, and forgiving me to absorb that. Take that debt upon yourself. That's what it means to forgive, you see. Just like the proverbial free lunch. There's no free forgiveness. Oh, it may be free to the one forgiven, that is, without cost, but to the one who forgives, the one who forgives bears the debt. The one who forgives bears the burden of that. That's why Paul could use this language. He said, if he owes you anything, impute it to me. I'll take it. Somebody's got to pay. Something's happened. Someone's been hurt to make it right. So Paul says, impute it to me. And so you see, when we forgive someone, the debt of what they did is imputed to the forgiver. And that's exactly how God forgives us, isn't it? He takes the debt of our offense. We've offended him by our sin. He's God, and we act as if he isn't. He's, he's God, and we act as if we are. And we offend him. We slander his name by our very lives, you see. And the debt is accumulated. And that debt is... It's separation from God. That debt is, as the Bible speaks of it, hell. That death is being forsaken by him, cast out of his presence. That debt is death. And so how is that dealt with? God forgives. What does that mean? Well, for him to forgive, this is simply how forgiveness is. This is how forgiveness works. It can't be forgiveness without it. It's not forgiveness without this. He takes the debt of our sin, and he does that in Jesus. So when Christ dies... That's God saying, you're forgiven. I take the burden, I take the debt of that on myself. Your guilt is now imputed to me. I didn't sin, God says. You did. It's not my debt, God says. It's yours. But to forgive that debt means that I will take it. And so he does. And so you see now, when we're called to forgive, we're called to forgive. And this is the language that's used, for instance, in Ephesians. And uh, chapter 4, the apostle puts it like this. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive us? He took the debt. He didn't charge it to our account. He charged it to his own account. He took it in the same way we read in Colossians in chapter 3. Again, letters Paul wrote at the same time that he would have been writing this letter to Philemon. 
Colossians in chapter 3. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, how has he forgiven us? By taking the debt. That's what it means. That's why forgiveness, forgiving another, can be, is often, painful. It's painful. It isn't an easy thing. It wasn't easy for God to forgive us. If you would ask Jesus as he went to the cross, Jesus as he was on the cross, Jesus as he was being forsaken by his father, say, excuse me, Jesus, is this easy? No, I'm bearing the debt of it. So when we've been hurt, we've been hurt. There's a debt there. And you see, we take it as the forgiver, as the one who forgives. Now you, now you say, well, must I forgive? And the answer is, oh, yes, we must as believers in Christ. Now Paul says, I could command you, Philemon, to do this. So he could have brought out all the verses I'm going to bring out here. But, but, but he says, he could have done that. But he says, I'm just going to appeal to him on the basis of love. You've been loved, now love. You see. But I read in our time as we were before the Lord a few minutes ago, I read from Matthew in chapter 18. You know that parable of Jesus. You know the context. It's about forgiveness. Peter's wondering whether or not he should really forgive or not, regardless of his question, and who he asked to forgive and all of that. And Jesus said, well, let me just put a, put a picture in your mind. Picture in your mind of a man who's been forgiven an unpayable debt, could never pay it, the impossible for him to pay it. And then there is someone who owes him just a relatively speaking small amount and he won't forgive it. Now what do you think of that person? He says, well that's your situation, Peter. You've been forgiven an unpayable amount. Someone else has taken this huge debt. So when someone comes against you, with a much lesser debt, should you not forgive him? Of course, the answer is yes. We, we, we feel the impact of that story. We, we feel what those people who were with Jesus when he was telling that story, we, we feel what they felt. We said, that's, that's horrible for that person to behave that way. And Jesus said, you're right, it is horrible. But then he says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. That's essentially what he says there. And it isn't so much that we earn forgiveness by forgiving, but we forgive because we've been forgiven. It, it's just simply consistent, the two together. And in fact, however startling that story is, I, I must confess to you, the most startling remark of Jesus in this regard is after he lays out what we call and prayed this morning, the Lord's Prayer. Remember, in, the, in one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, is this, forgive us our debts the way we put it this morning, because that's a traditional way, and I didn't want to mess anybody up, uh, just in case you're an automatic pilot. Uh, as we forgive our debtors, literally in, the, in this particular version that I've been reading, the English Standard Version, it has it more uh, uh, grammatically correct, helps us. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In, in other words, 
There's an assumption when we come to God to ask for forgiveness that we've already forgiven others. And then just so we don't miss it, and Jesus doesn't do this with any other part of the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't do this, he doesn't give us a commentary on any of the other lines, but just so we don't miss it, verse 14, which is obviously after verse 13, but it's after this prayer, and Jesus gives us a commentary on that one verse, that one, that one petition. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That is breathtaking. You see. Now, why would Jesus highlight that particular petition? I mean, I, I wouldn't mind some commentary on, on, on how it would be your name, for instance, or your kingdom come or your will be done, that sort of thing. Well, this is a commentary on that. This is the kingdom of God. This is what it means when God's name is hallowed. He says, really, when push comes to shove, here's my kingdom. It's a kingdom of reconciliation. It's a kingdom of forgiveness. If you don't get that, you don't get the rest. If you want my kingdom to come, forgive. If you want my will to be done, forgive. And so he says, this is how important it is. Because you see, if you haven't forgiven, have you really been forgiven? If you don't forgive, have you really been forgiven? Do you really get it? Do you really understand what's taking place? Now, the truth of the matter is, at any one moment in time, we struggle with forgiving others that have hurt us. That's a normal course of events. As I said, it's costly. It does hurt. And we can't struggle with it. But you see, if we live in persistent unforgiveness, not only are we going to be miserable, but it may be that we haven't been born again. It may be that we really don't understand. We haven't really embraced our own sinful condition before God and how much we've been forgiven. And sometimes in the life of a believer, because this prayer is really a believer's prayer, you know, I don't like to call it the Lord's Prayer, even got around it in our order of worship this morning. I called it the prayer that Jesus taught us. The Lord's Prayer is really in John 17. That's the prayer he prays. This is the disciples' prayer, really. But I don't want to go against, you know, 2,000 years of tradition. But uh, this is the prayer he gives us as a model to pray, you see. And he gives us this model to pray because, you see, he wants us to understand what it is to be in this kingdom. And so, so you see, it's difficult for us. But he reminds us, listen, he reminds me, Bill, if you don't forgive, there's a sense in which, not the ultimate justification sense, there's a sense in which I'm hanging on to your petitions for forgiveness of your own sins. There's a breach between us. There's something going on here. It won't quite be right. The Apostle John writes in 1 John, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before the Father. And then we'll receive that for which we ask. And you see, when we've not forgiven and we go before the Father, our hearts condemn us. When I ask God to forgive me and I'm 
withholding forgiveness from another. Even if I'm not willing at that moment in time to acknowledge it, which is, can be true of me. There's something in me that says, this just isn't right. Jesus lays this out too in Luke in chapter 17. Verse 1, and Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Then he says this, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must Forgive him. That's just a startling expression to me. I would have expected Jesus to say, if your brother sins, forgive him. He doesn't say that. He says, rebuke him. Now, that doesn't have to be as harsh as it sounds to us. We think, oh, take a stick and beat him. That's that's a rebuke him kind of thing. Uh, But no, no, go to him, you see. Go to him and say, you've sinned against me. Now, do we do that all the time? No, because there's sometimes we're offended when we shouldn't be, and sometimes we're too sensitive, and all of that sort of thing. I'll let you work that in the course of your own life, when you go, when you don't go. Um, but, 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 but because love does cover a multitude of sins, you see. At least that's, I hope that's true in my marriage. Uh, Karen says it is, so we don't have to talk about these things all the time. But, but love does cover a multitude of sins. But there are some times, not that love doesn't cover it, but because of love, the breach is so big, you realize there's something wrong with the relationship that we really must go. And so you go and say, here's how I've been hurt. And, and you see, when you do that, it may be that the person you think has hurt you uh, hasn't really. And they can offer a good defense and say, well, this is what I meant by this, or this, this is what was going on there. There's just a misunderstanding. You go, oh, good, then it's settled, you see. Nothing needs to be forgiven. Nothing needs to be repented of. You're just wrong. You just made a mistake, and now things hopefully are, are good again. Or it could be the person said, I had no idea that I hurt you like that. I'm really sorry. Forgive me. Repent, forgive. Or the person says, you know, when I did that, I knew that would hurt you. If you think you're above that, uh, go back about 10 minutes in the sermon, okay? But you think, you say, oh, yes, uh, I, uh, I knew when I did that it hurt you, and I've been avoiding you since. So thank you for coming to me. I'm really sorry. And you forgive. Now, remember, in the forgiveness of that, what you're doing is having the debt imputed to you, not to hold it against them, to free them so that there can be reconciliation. So if that makes your stomach hurt, well, you've just forgiven. Don't expect it to be a breeze necessarily. But then it may be that you go to them and they say, I knew that that hurt you and and I don't care. So there is no real repentance. What do you do then? Do you forgive? Well, in a sense, no. Forgiveness isn't the right word at that point because there can be no reconciliation. Or you can forgive, but they still are, are, are away from you. There is no reconciliation. Your forgiveness doesn't reconcile. But that doesn't mean you get to hate them. In fact, Jesus has very specific words in cases like that. He says, bless them. Now, not in the idiom sense in our culture, which means you've got to bless them out. 
When he says bless them, he says say nice things about them. Really bless them. Don't curse them. Pray for them. Love your enemies. Don't repay evil for evil. But repay good for evil. You see, you're loving them. You're being compassionate. The forgiveness just isn't the right word at that point because forgiveness is, is, is a word that's used to bring reconciliation. What you're doing in that case is obviously you're ready to forgive them. You want to forgive them. You're going to be compassionate and merciful and kind to them. And hopefully, as with us, the kindness, your kindness will lead to their repentance. And then that leads to forgiveness. Then that leads to, to reconciliation. And when do you know you've forgiven? One of our 17th century friends, Thomas Watson, put it like this. He said, when do we forgive? In other words, when do we know that we've forgiven another? And he gave us these points to keep in mind. He said this. We know that we've forgiven when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. In other words, we really have taken this debt upon ourselves and we no longer are thinking about them paying that revenge. We have no desire to give back at them. He said, we know we've forgiven when we, do not, when we will not do our enemies mischief or harm, but rather we wish them well. He said, we know we've forgiven when we grieve at their calamities. So if something bad happens to them, we don't say, oh, that's great. They deserve that. We're actually sincerely sad that something bad has come upon them. You know your own heart. So you know when you're able to do that, when you do that, and when you don't. He says, when we pray for them. He said, when we seek reconciliation with them, as far as it depends on us, and when we show ourselves ready on all occasions to help them, that is, when they have a need, we are ready to go and do whatever we can to help them. So if that's the case, and we know we've, been, we've forgiven them, we know we've been reconciled with them because we have their best interest in mind just like we do with others that we really, really love. Now, is that an easy place to get to? Uh, depends on the offense. The greater the offense, the harder the place it is to get there. But get there we must. Get there we must. For if we don't, we betray the gospel. So here's Onesimus, this runaway slave. He's standing on the porch of uh, Philemon's house with his letter. Philemon doesn't know what's in the letter yet, and so he sees this runaway slave. You can only imagine what he's thinking. The audacity of this slave after he's done this to me, after he's stolen from me, after he's run away, after, after this has become known in my household that this slave has gone away. Look at how my life has, has, has been hurt by him. And here and now he stands. What in the world could he want from me? Doesn't he know I could have him beaten? Doesn't he know I could have him branded? Doesn't he know I could have him chained? Doesn't he know I can do whatever to him I really want to do and nobody will really care? Doesn't he get that? Doesn't he understand that? And then the audacity of this runaway slave to be standing there with a letter from Paul, he glances through it and he realizes what he's being requested to do to forgive him. And he thinks, I don't have a category in my brain for that, to forgive a slave. If your computer breaks down and you call geeks on wheels and they come over and you say, what should I do? And the geek says, forgive your computer. If I lean in to forgive a slave, a possession, what does that mean? 
And now to say, as Paul does, we're brothers, how could that be? See, all that's true in the midst of that. Now Philemon, you see, is faced with doing what's outside of his categories to do. But is that any different for us? You've really been hurt. Could be by a spouse, friend, another believer, child, parent. And that one comes and is on your doorstep saying, forgive me. Do we really have a category in our brain for that? Isn't the first thing that comes is, how can you stand here before me after what you've done? After what you've said? But I think at that point, our mind should rush as our mind should always rush as there should be a straight line, a clear path, a good road to the cross of Jesus. Because you see, at that point in time, what has to come back into our minds is God and we on his doorstep saying to him, forgive us. And fortunately for us, he doesn't say, what audacity do you have to be standing in my presence? You realize that he's taken that debt. And so even in the midst of that circumstance, when that person who has really hurt stands at our doorstep and says, forgive me, how can we not? Because you see, that's the guts, really, of the gospel. It was indeed on that night that Jesus was betrayed that he met with his disciples. We had said many things, many of the things we read this morning, thought about this morning in the context of his own sacrifice, in the context of being forgiven, in the context of our living together as a community of people in Jesus. Because on that night that things began to get more defined, clearer. And Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whose sins? <laughs> Theirs. Against whom? God. How could they be forgiven? Because Jesus would take the debt. Because their guilt would be imputed to him. He took it. That they, we, repentant ones, could be forgiven. We show up on God's doorstep and we say, forgive me in Jesus. Because of him, he said, oh yes, that debt 
has been taken. You're loosed. You're free. The sin is sent away. But then you say, another person is at our doorstep. Forgive me, they say. Who takes that debt? Well, we do. I mean, that's the feeling of it, but, but, but it's been taken already by another. Jesus has forgiven me, forgiven them. How can I withhold forgiveness? Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. And we'd get it, that I'd get it, that I'd realize my own forgiveness, live in the freedom of it, being loosed from the debt of eternal punishment, and that you would grant mercy and grace that I, we would loose one another as well from the hurts and pains that we've caused each other. Would be in families with husbands and wives, children and parents, among friends. Father, that we could then be reconciled people by the gospel, reconciled to you, reconciled to each other, I pray now that you would take this bread and this juice and you would set it apart in a way that would enable us to know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. Can't hide anything and no need to because he's taken the debt of our sin and thus through him, God, we're reconciled to you. So, Father, even as we come together to this table, that we'd not only be reconciled to you, God, but to each other and those in our minds even, those who come to mind in this context. That as we come together, we'll know that having been forgiven, we forgive. Needing forgiveness, we are forgiven. And this I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table <clears throat> is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. We receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. Savior of sinners because he's taken the debt of sinners that such sinners might be forgiven. And you desire to live in such a way uh, that is consistent with the gospel of Jesus as one reconciled to him and to his people. That'd be true for you, I I invite you to come, this two sections come down, this section to my left, these two down the aisle to my right, and take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, 
Allow your mind to run. He's taken your debts. You've been forgiven. Now forgive. Please come.